You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. Welcome to The Crisis Beat. This is episode nine. It's June 18th, 2023. My name is Brady Wood and I'm a business owner and public relations professional. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in his other life is chair of medicine at McMaster University. And Mark just wanted to wish you a happy, happy Father's Day. It's Father's Day here in Canada and the US. Today, as we're recording, what have you... Thanks, Brady. Same to you. And another beautiful day here after a cold, drizzly spring, which suddenly turned into summer, as it seems to. Everybody seems to be concerned about forest fires in Canada. Just to remember, remind people that Canada is a vast country and the forest fires are very, very far away from where we are, but good marker of the impending climate change fiasco that's coming with all these smoke and fires. So we did have a couple of days of bad smoke here at the same time we had it on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and it's now completely cleared, although yesterday it was back a little bit. I saw when I was out walking, I could smell fires again. All right, so Brady, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about today. I guess you're going to do the lead in and then we'll sort of hand off the stories to one another. So why don't you go ahead? So this episode, Mark, we're going to talk about several intriguing topics. I watched a cool documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger that had some crisis communications dimensions. We're going to talk about Prince Harry and Meghan that's become some kind of, I wouldn't say it's our, our fetish, but it's definitely some intriguing interest of ours to, to dissect what those folks are doing in, in the media as a, as a kind of form of crisis communications. And then our main issue is going to be around the retraction of a, of a publication in Lancet and really get into the topic of academic dishonesty and research quality. And so I want to talk about that and the impacts of that and how it's how it's communicated in the press. And Mark, you mentioned the forest fires, and I know it's not a topic of our conversation today, but we could also parse a little bit how how Canada has done communicating about that. When when Canada makes national news, it's usually about Justin Trudeau's hair or some some catastrophe. And outside of that, we don't seem to get the press we used to. So at the moment, it's that we aren't we don't seem to be getting a reputation for dealing with these forest fires effectively. Do you agree with that? Yeah, was, people were in the news saying Canada should just put those forest fires out again, just to go back to my earlier point. It's not that simple. And remember that forest fires are a natural part of forest ecology. And there's many people who would say that you should just let them burn because if you don't let them burn, then they build up more wood and they burn brighter the next time. But not relevant for this discussion, but perhaps something we could talk about in the future because it has been very interesting watching how Canada, in air quotes, has been portrayed through the course of this when suddenly people in New York City can't see across the park because of the smoke that's coming down. Anyway, let's move on to our favorite topic, the yes. private, the privacy tour continues. <laughs> so Brady, maybe give us a quick summary about what's been going on with our good friends. Yes. Yeah, so Mark, if you, if you missed the reference to privacy tour in an episode of South Park, they made fun of what appeared to be avatars of Prince Harry and Meghan and said that they were on a privacy tour. So doing a lot of media to ask to respect their privacy. And, and that trend seems to continue. So we've sort of looked at that through the lens of what they're trying to accomplish. We've tried to quantify it in terms of you know, last last episode, we talked about some polling that spoke about their public reputation. So this saga continues. Harry was in a British court giving about 12 hours of testimony about the British press in a, in a lawsuit that he's filed. And, you know, I don't I don't think it went over very well, his testimony. It sounds like the, the general read was that he has not made an effective case that his phone was bugged or many of the other claims that he's making. And again, I think he didn't come off terribly well. And then simultaneously, citing some production issues, but I'm sure there's always more to these stories, Spotify has canceled Meghan Markle's podcast deal. So she's lost a $20 million deal citing some podcast issues, some production issues with the podcast. So again, it's sort of, 
for me, I, I don't know if, if these are all balls these folks put in motion long before, and now it's just not playing out very well. But I, I'm, I am at this point now puzzled by some of the way they're handling the media because it just seems to be worsening their their public reputation and degrading their brand. So maybe that's an unavoidable an unavoidable outcome of the strategy that they chose, which was to complain frequently in the press about these family issues and try to build a career generally on that one issue, it feels like. Although I'm sure they had aspirations to be like the Obamas. And I think their next documentary on Netflix is about them building houses, for example, in South Africa. I I, I don't think I'll tune in. And I feel like the, the ratings will be poor just based on those reputation scores we've looked at from the couple in their polling. But anything else you wanted to observe on this, Mark? Yeah, I, I I share your sense of questioning what they're up to. The lawsuit seems odd. I totally get the idea that if someone taps into your cell phone and sends private information, it's a crime and should probably be prosecuted. But I I, I think whenever you move something like that forward, you need to weigh the holistic cost of it, not just you know the physical cost of all the lawyers and the time in court, but also the reputational impact that that's going to have. And remember that the the way that that is going to be conveyed is through the people against whom you have launched the lawsuit. So you can make the assumption that the coverage is always going to slant towards the negative. It just strikes me, I agree completely, that their brand has been damaged by the strategy that they followed. And it runs counter to that thing we've talked about a few times about the royal family being kind of one of the rare brands in the world that can get away with literally burning people at the stake. Mm-hmm. And and yet their their strategy has always been to just head for the highway, not respond. And when you've got a timeline that stretches over centuries, these things always blow over. And this seems to be like a little lightning rod that's been stuck way up in the air by people who probably if they truly wanted to escape from the world that they were born into, or at least he does, she wasn't born into this world, they need to just duck and cover and be quiet and, you know, periodically do positive things and hope that the world notices rather than, there's a good word, strumpeting around with a big sign saying we want more privacy as our, as we saw with the South Park episode, where I really do get the feeling that that is the impression one gets about what they're up to. I don't know, Brady, thoughts on that? Well, I think the thing that strikes me too is the royal family. Like, what a interesting institution. We've talked about it before, but just hearing that, it's they they must sit quite comfortably. Like, even recent events, you you kind of think if you try to think of the external factors weighing down on an issue like this, I I turn to what is the consequence they could f- possibly face in a worst case scenario. But it, the public has not really turned against them, even with Prince Andrew being involved with Epstein. I mean, Princess Diana, I'm sure they took some reputational hit for that. But ultimately, that institution seems so deeply entrenched that it's it's got a bit of a too big to fail sort of it carries that kind of a weight. But as for as for Meghan and Harry, I completely agree. Like, I, I think they're going to need some kind of reboot strategy now. And I'm not sure that the the cutesy like building houses in South Africa where we're genteel philanthropists, excellent people is kind of going to do that because they seem to aspire to a greater space in the public consciousness. Like so much of this does seem to speak to ambition. Like they want to be a known couple, famous like Jay-Z and Beyonce or the Obamas, or I'm not, I'm not sure who else would actually hit that mark, but 
they seem to be aiming at that. And I think they reached it in the sense that they penetrated the public consciousness, but not the way that they thought. Like, I feel like these folks are going to be like the Cato Kalin of, sorry, that's probably an obscure reference, but Cato Kalin was OJ's housekeeper during the OJ Simpson trial, who's like this eccentric guy, but he was like well known for about five minutes in the 90s. And I feel like this couple will be our, you know, 2021 to 2024 fascination when they do the look back at the 2020s and 2050. And that's about it, unless they really figure out some new angle. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, let's move on to Arnold Schwarzenegger. So Brady, this is something that you brought up. So I just to give quick history, Arnold Schwarzenegger, former bodybuilder, leading Republican politician in the United States, probably the biggest walking advertisement for a drug I've spent my entire career researching, which is warfarin, because he's got multiple heart valves, which everybody knows, I think. And he's been governor of California and and for quite some time, and I think was reasonably well respected as governor of California. Republican, but you know it's California, so California Republicans are very different than the kind of Republicans that we see now parading around nationally in the United States. And you were watching a Netflix thing, which talked a lot about this. So are you going to give the highlight? Mark, it's not too much to ask, though. You mentioned the warfarin and heart valves thing. I actually don't know that. Is there, could you give us a synopsis? Because I think it might be an interesting factoid there I wouldn't want to miss. Yeah. So Arnold Schwarzenegger has had heart valve surgery a couple of different times. In fact, he's had, I'm just looking it up here, he's had two of them. And initially, so The way we treat heart valves is there's two kinds of heart valves. There's ones that are derived from pigs, and then there's ones that are metal. The pig ones don't require long-term blood thinning therapy. The the mechanical ones, the ones made of metal, do require anticoagulation. And, And the hypothesis on the internet is that he got a mechanical one, and as a result of that, has had to have anticoagulation or blood thinning therapy. And there's been some independent sort of suggestions of that. So yeah, he, he it, little known fact, but he his original surgery was almost 30 years ago for his what's called congenital aortic valve, which is when the, the valve that leads out of the heart that goes to the circulation, you're born with a defect in it. So it has two leaves instead of three. And he was, that's been widely talked about in the medical world because he's kind of the poster child for uh, successful surgery multiple times with good outcomes. Right. Okay. And is there some marker that would tell tell the public, like, why would they speculate that he's had mechanical and not, you know, genetic or whatever, pig valve? Yeah, because it's hard to redo, redo, redo pig valves and the mechanical valves last longer, but they require any coagulation. So it. um, okay. it's not entirely clear whether he's had mechanical ones or not, but he he certainly would be a great candidate for a mechanical one if he was having a redo. On the other hand, there's all kinds of new technology around how they should, how you can how you can replace valves without actually requiring surgery. So it looks like just looking on the internet, he's had multiple different valve surgeries over the years with the first one way back in 1997. Very interesting. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for sharing that bit. So yeah, for me, it was just, I've been watching this documentary, like for, um, so new documentary on Netflix, it's three episodes. Episode one is his body bodybuilding career. Episode two is his remarkable film career. Episode three is his political career. So I've been just watching that on the rowing machine every morning at the gym and get into episode three. And there's about 40 minutes remaining in the episode of episode three. There is this kind of remarkable crisis communications case study. So he's uh, there's a runoff for governor, which means the governor's lost confidence in the voters. And Arnold Schwarzenegger and a wild cast of celebrities, Larry Flint, the hustler publisher, Gary Cole, you know, this strange people all running. But he talks about the lead up to him having this political career. All of that to say, 
Uh, about five days before the election, the media starts reporting that several women have come forward and, and accuse him of groping them and making inappropriate comments. And, you know, I think I'm, I, I can't I can't say I give this like a gold star necessarily, but it was it was a kind of a remarkable the way he handled it was actually I, I thought interesting. So initially not defensive. So he he initially just said, look, if I've offended people, I'm sorry. But he did it in a kind of like almost jovial way, but not making fun of anybody and not like pressuring people. And then as the days go on and the scrutiny goes up, he does point out, for example, that, you know, some of these may not have been, you know, substantiated. And basically, he's obviously not going to back down from the position. And uh, there was some, you know, questions about his suitability for public office. But then interestingly, in the documentary, he at the end of the race, he actually surged. So this could also be an interesting view of a either his crisis communications were perhaps better than than one might think or one might just perceive just reading the media and, and some of the accounts. Or alternatively, this might be another case of the successful bad actor where someone hasn't taken like full accountability, but somehow just the media scrutiny itself generates more buzz around that person's name. So he he won in kind of spectacular fashion that race. And one of the media commentators at the end of this part of the documentary says, you know, I really think we actually kind of helped him. And another another reporter says, I was surprised it didn't have a bigger impact on the race. And I'm not sure that it didn't have a bigger impact on the race. It sounded like it was the leading story for the last three to five days of that race. And then interestingly, you see him now as, a, as an aged person. I think he's in his mid to late 70s. And he reflects on it and says, yeah, like, absolutely at the, you know, sort of at the gym or on the movie set. Yeah, we we had a lot of kind of sexual humor and it was just like completely wrong so but he, he was never he never equivocated on the fact that he was you know potentially had behaved badly or that he regretted actions that harmed people so he was pretty straightforward on that in, at the front end mark i don't know that you actually had a chance to view this yet but those are just no, i didn't i didn't actually watch it but i was interested in the kind of concept and and reading through the notes and also having done a little bit of background reading on it uh, I, I think there's probably an entire entire master's or PhD built somehow in how news which should be damaging can sometimes build a brand. And again, I think our good our our, our the, you know, Donald Trump is probably the prototypical example of that. That in U.S. politics, the uh, the logic that we might normally follow doesn't apply. It's actually quite remarkable. As opposed to the next story we're going to do, which is Nicola Sturgeon, where I think if Nicola Sturgeon was in the US, she'd probably be riding high in the polls right now. But <laughs> unfortunately, in the United Kingdom, she's not. So it's it's really very interesting. It's also interesting to see that this kind of what we, you know what we might think is a phenomenon, which is isolated to Donald Trump, in fact, existed decades ago. And so there's a foundational basis for the kind of stuff that went on with Donald Trump. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we see this, it does appear to be a trend that I just don't fully understand. But I do think it might just be all news is good news. Yeah, um, anyway, yeah so. Before we go to Nicola Sturgeon, I definitely highly recommend this documentary. I got a lot out of it. I don't watch a lot of media, but when I, I watch something, I want something uplifting that kind of teaches me something about the world and helps me to look at my own life through the lens of self-improvement. And there is a lot of that in this Schwarzenegger story. The guy had a really remarkable life, but there, there's more to learn from him than just that he was a, a bodybuilder and an actor. There's some existential dimensions there. And and he did kind of destroy his family with this affair that he had with a housekeeper that yielded a son out of wedlock that he had to confess to his wife. And 
even that was profound to me. He's now kind of living alone on a ranch, like feeding the animals in the morning. And I'm sure he has a vibrant social life and lots of people love him. But it was also just the, the whole thing had this very kind of incredible, heroic, but also semi-tragic arc, strangely. It was, it was excellent. Really great to great to watch. Uh, Brady, do you know what it was actually called on Netflix? Because I turn on Netflix once in a while. I pay for a subscription. I look at it. I can't find anything in it. And so I turn it off again. So yes, yeah, so the, the documentary is called Arnold and it's three-parter on Netflix. And I, I think it just came out in the last two weeks or something. There we go. Okay, let's move on to Nicholas Sturgeon. So again, I'll give a quick backgrounder here if that's okay, Brady. Yeah, please do. Absolutely. Yeah. So so for those who aren't in the United Kingdom and in Kingdom, and I'm not in the United Kingdom, don't really understand UK politics. The the island we call Great Britain is made up of three distinct almost countries, Scotland, Wales, and England. They have a unusual relationship in that at some level they're united as a single entity, and at other levels they are disunited. I believe that process was called devolution, where they handed a lot of responsibility to the the Scotland, Wales, and England retained some of it. Nicola Sturgeon was for a long time the leader of something called the SNP, which stands for the Scottish Nationalist Party, which is, I think that's what it stands for. And it is at, at least in name a separatist party. So kind of like Canada, you have this weird situation where in the national parliament, you have a separatist group that has some influence on the governing of Scotland, but simultaneously, its kind of underlying fundamental purpose is to drive Scotland farther away from the United Kingdom. In the same way that in Canada, we have the Bloc Québécois, which is represented in Canada's parliament. That sole real purpose is to represent Quebec and to drive Quebec farther away from Canada. The you, People may remember there was a a referendum a couple of years ago in Scotland, which was which was very, very close, but ultimately decided in favor of what's called the Remain, so Remain within the United Kingdom. Recently, when Nicola Sturgeon was still the leader of the SNP in the British Parliament, they went to the British equivalent of the Supreme Court and got a judgment saying they could not hold another referendum. So they are not going to hold another referendum overtly, but widely believe that in the background, they're doing everything they can. And then suddenly this spring, early in the spring, late winter, Nicola Sturgeon just resigned right out of the blue, no warning, very mysterious, and effectively disappeared. And now we're starting to learn why. So Brady, do you want to give us a little bit more of the in interesting information? You know what, Mark, if, you, are, if you're okay to do the summary on the issue, I, yeah. I, do under, I do understand it, but I think you might be better versed in it, to be honest. Yeah, so it was very interesting because she kind of disappeared, causing a great deal of speculation in various news media. And and then her husband was arrested, although not charged, and with with financial irregularities in the SNP and the disappearance of a reasonably large amount of money. Hard to imagine it's worth having your career explode over a million pounds, but I guess it is. As story alluded to the fact that an extraordinarily expensive motorhome was seized from, I believe it was her husband's parents' place. Right. Uh, also quite silly. And and then recently, within the last week, Nicola Sturgeon was arrested, although also not charged in the same investigation. And so it's unclear to me where this is all going, but we thought it was probably worthwhile just mentioning this kind of approach to not engaging with the issue that like there's no way on this planet that Nicola Sturgeon didn't know that this was all coming when she resigned. And it's quite an interesting strategy to just disappear. I'm not sure it's the best strategy because now it sort of leaves the aura that she was 
conniving the whole time. Like there was something weird about this, that she knew she was going to be charged. She's not protesting her innocence. She was held up as kind of the poster child of Scottish independence. And and to be completely frank, during all the time with Boris Johnson and all the weirdness that was going on in the in the UK, the SNP kind of came across as a, a st- stable, sort of sensible, earnest group of you know people from Northern Britain. And now it turns out that they've got some of the plumbing of the Conservative Party. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is why I didn't think I could do justice to the story, because I was reading this and I was sort of like, so... There seems to be a financial donation scandal, some 600,000 coming into from activists. I don't know if they're questioning where that money went. You know, the it was very interesting that motorhome is that, you know, is that a is that a sign of financial impropriety or did they take it because it's filled with evidence or, you know, there's a lot of nuanced strangeness in all of this. So, but I also think, you know, maybe her, maybe the lack of communication on on the part of her and her um, colleagues, I was going to say co-conspirators, but so we can't say that yet. You know, that it might speak to the fact that they know they've been kind of caught and are in deep trouble. But the other thing that boggled me a bit, Mark, is like, are you with me that this doesn't seem like a lot of money? Like it is, but it's not like this doesn't seem like this, like all of this was worth it. You know, if it's some um, 600,000 or a million dollars like this is if if they did this for this small amount amongst a few people like it's an awful lot of greed to derail you know what what seemed to be kind of a vibrant political scene and important contribution i just think that's yeah i I could not agree more you know i'm sure that for many people 600,000 pounds which would be close to one and a half 1.2 1.3 million dollars canadian is it seems like a lot of money but we're talking about national level politics and and to be completely honest like negatively influencing the trajectory of Scottish independence because mm-hmm. Nicola Sturgeon had been tied up with that. And it, I agree. It's, it's, it's one of these, if it's actually true that they manipulated or removed, and again, un, not found in court, no charges laid so far, but that they were willing to undo all that work for $600,000, it kind of speaks to their attitude about life and their politics and their society because it really isn't worth that to be quite no. honest but interesting and something that we need to do i'm just looking at a headline here scottish sunday express april 9th 20 please give me privacy sturgeon's call as indie dream on hold so that sounds a bit like our earlier discussion about our our uh, privacy tour <laughs> but also you can see right away back in april they're tying the independence and the fate of nicola sturgeon and it's all over the tabloid press in the United in the United Kingdom, really highlighting the fact that this motorhome was seized. So yeah, quite quite remarkable and undoubtedly bears further uh discussion once we we get more information. Yeah. No, definitely I think one of the takeaways here is just character is fate. And I don't think you should, you know, sell out your cause for a, a pittance and destroy your reputation, r- risk destroying your reputation and going to jail. Like that's, I mean, I, I hope that's fair to most people, but I'm kind of just shocked at that, that that hits me. But also, uh, I do think the silence speaks to an inability to communicate for fear of further incriminating oneself, for an example. So that might be, that might be what we read of it from a crisis communications perspective. She's getting counsel to say nothing. Yeah, I totally agree. And you wonder if, like that that's actually probably damaging to the brand so they really do need to get some high-end advice about how they reframe the discussion around independence in a positive light while effectively distancing themselves from her because it doesn't sound to me like they have a 
able spokesperson who's been able to disentangle her from the independent stuff. Very, very important. Comes back to our underlying theme, Brady, which we've mentioned many times, is it took you 37 years to build your reputation and 37 seconds to destroy it, or 37 years to build your business and 37 seconds to destroy it. And that's the underlying theme of the whole podcast is be ready when these crises hit, because these crises are going to hit to act quickly to make sure that the message that you want to deliver gets delivered. Yes, for sure. And I, and I think, you know, in these ones where you've, I think folks are out of luck if they already had this poor of judgment, but it's it's not impossible that someone who has done something wrong can't recover with good advice. And, and in some ways, maybe Schwarzenegger was a good example of that. Like, there's no reason why this person, if she's committed fraud and has to go to jail, I'm not sure how she recovers her reputation outside of being apologetic, truly, and penance, public penance of some sort. I think it's just probably the order of magnitude. But again, it's you know, there there are tools that could help her through this. That is part of what we're trying to discuss here, for sure. Um, so, Mark, we're going to move to our next topic, which was academic fraud. So very interesting article, which we'll, we'll share, as we always do, which was about a Lancet study about long COVID. And, well, Mark, do you want to take this one again, may, maybe asking you for a bit of more of the summary? This is more your world, by the way. Mark won't say this, but he's an extremely well-published author. Mark, you have a renowned journal article in paleontology in the last year and a half about cancer and dinosaur bones. And that was just your side project. That's like your hobby life of paleontology. But in the academic health sciences, Mark is one of the probably top 2000 researchers on earth in health sciences research. And you probably have an H index score of over 120 or something, probably higher. You, I, I should have looked that up before I mentioned it. But remarkable, you know, 50 plus publications a year in hematology, world renowned. So this is really your Ballywick Mark. It's the environment you are used to work in. I hope I did justice to all of that, those truths about your career accomplishments. Um, but in this case, there was a, a study retracted and republished, but it it had, well, why don't you take it through us, but it, it's more than just data errors by the sounds of it. Yeah. So Brady, thanks. And thanks for that introduction. The, you know, the background here is that I, that science has been under threat for for a, a long time, probably for 2,000 years, it, it's got the news recently because of COVID and you know active disinformation about COVID. I, I don't think that that's actually new. In fact, I'm sure it's not. Vaccine hesitancy, for example, has been around for a long time. One of the things that feeds into people not having faith in science is that scientists are humans, which is sometimes weird for people to realize. And they're subject to the same forces as everybody else. And, you know, I lived that life in the past where you, I, I once told somebody who was sitting beside me in an airplane that I try not to fly anywhere more than twice a week. And that was partly to to f be able to talk a little bit about my areas of research and partly, I think, just because I enjoyed that sort of lifestyle. And researchers aspire to that just like anybody else does, the sort of opportunity and the notoriety and all the bits and pieces in addition to the feeling good about the fact that you know that the work you've performed has resulted in a net improvement in the human condition. And and what what's remarkable to me is that when we start to think a little bit about academic fraud, that is people who have gotten into trouble because subsequently their data was found to not be reproducible or worse to have been faked, is that there's kind of this is actually more common than we want to think that it is. There's really three ways I think that people can get into trouble. And there's sort of extraordinarily well-advertised variants on this. And, and the problem is that this then colors 
their discussion with others about science. So what the scientific naysayers will remember is that this paper was one of or two of or 50 of the 100,000 papers on COVID was retracted. And so that it has a lot of extra weight. So there's kind of three ways that people can get into trouble. And we'll get to the PR angle of this at the end. So the, the first is it's a team sport research. And particularly now, as teams get bigger, when you put your name on a paper, you're essentially endorsing the truthfulness of all of the authors, many of whom you will have never met, because you know it's a multinational team. It involves countries from around the world. It involves people with vast arrays of specialization and experience. And if one of those people does something wrong, there's no way that you as an author can independently verify what they're doing but you are taking responsibility for it. The second way that you can get into trouble is what I call kind of low-grade malfeasance, and that is that you cherry-pick data that's real, that highlights a point you want to make, or you pick a gel that looks better than all the other gels and put it in the paper. And then the third way is frank fraud. And what we're going to talk about today in a little bit of detail is just the frank fraud, and then explore a little bit about why people do that. And then more importantly, you know, talk about how the institution, the people, the people probably can't recover from it. We'll talk a little bit about that. But the institution needs to have a strategy to allow it to recover from this kind of stuff. And people will, in my world, remember, for example, when the U.S. regulator has this power to essentially banish institutions from the research environment to punish them. And, and there's many examples where where institutions have been severely censured by U.S. funding organizations because of the activities of one or more of their researchers. So it, it's it's a it's a super interesting area. It's a bit invisible, but it has a direct impact on everybody because it's what it contributes importantly to the the perception that science is a subjective specialty rather than an objective specialty. And and ideally, everything we do as scientists should be objective, which is quite different than the PR world, where everything, to be quite honest, is much more subjective. So, Brady, I don't know if you're looking into this from the outside. Thoughts on that sort of little dissertation? Well, I mean, for me, that's a lot to digest for the public. So I don't I don't actually know that members of the public would appreciate that, you know, sometimes, Mark, some of the publications you've published could have 20 or more authors, and you may not have met some of them in the team sport dimension, of course. And so, and and I do think this is also like an epistemology issue, like what is truth? So science is got some very narrow guardrails for these, especially like higher order papers where you need to have double blind controlled trials, but it is aimed at perfect objectivity. And so this is a really strange world where ultimately aimed at perfect objectivity because of human nature can be still completely fallible. And again, back to that thing about character is fate, you will have people of poor character operating in these realms. And so the systems and structures that catch them are not always are not always bulletproof. In this case, this Lancet paper, for example, it seems like that someone did step up and say, you know, remind me, by the way, Mark, what were the findings particularly of this Lancet paper? It was an impactful study of long COVID. Yeah. So the the, the, the issue, just to frame the scientific context again, is that long COVID is something which is well described now. It's It remains quite mysterious. It has many, many manifestations which have been ascribed to it and and there's an there's a ton of active research going on right now to try to better define what the illness is 
and also to identify potential therapies for it. Mm, mm, there's an enormous constituency of people who have symptoms that are ascribed to long COVID. And the problem is that when that happens, they, you know, they get, obviously they have a lot of personal feeling built up into it. And so papers which are felt to be support the hypothesis that long COVID is a really important manifestation of the disease. When they get retracted, it, it, it colors the whole field of long COVID research because it becomes unclear. So the bottom line here was, it was a study which was looking at the clinical manifestations of long COVID. It was an interesting group of people from China, and, and and it had a lot of impact when it was published in 2021. And then what, what essentially happened was some of the data was found to not be reliable. And as a result of that, these authors actually did what I think is actually a really good strategy in this field. This wasn't frank fraud in terms of like the whole data set being manipulated or made up like we'll talk about later. The the study was essentially correctable. So what they did was they went back. They First of all, they let the editors know. So there's no kind of futzing around about trying to hide things or defend things, which oftentimes is what the authors try to do. And it causes no end of mayhem. So what they did, what the authors did is they, the editors working with the authors retracted the article, but then provided them with the opportunity to use the data, which was valid contained within the original analysis and republish it. Because what interestingly happened is that the data, which was removed, didn't influence the final results. And so it, it it's a very interesting strategy. And this is a good example of what you and I would probably think of as classic management of an of an adverse event, which is you own up to it, you take responsibility for it, and you work hard to make it right. And usually the editors of the journal, in my experience, would be not willing to actually engage in that kind of a discussion. But because I think this was not gross fraud, or at least didn't appear to be, the editors were probably willing to actually work with the authors to republish it. So a nice win-win. The Lancet gets lots of positive buzz because they had a paper retracted, which was then revalidated and reissued. It was subject to the same level of scrutiny and peer review. And the authors really salvaged their reputation. Having a paper withdrawn from a major journal is is like a career-ending event for most people. So nice job on their part to figure out a strategy which resulted in the cleansing of their reputation. So nice, a, a good a good outcome as opposed to some of the other ones that we're going to talk about in a second. Yeah, no, we're going to get into some other actual fraud cases. But in this one, I wonder, Mark, too, it's like, do you think those authors had an advantage that others wouldn't because also this was an important article? Like, I don't know that everyone would have that opportunity necessarily to say data errors and republish, or is that a standard kind of process in the journals? No, it's extremely unique. And I think it was entirely because the Lancet had published a lot of high impact COVID stuff and it had some high impact COVID stuff withdrawn or retracted in the in, in some of the articles that describe this. They talk about some of the other articles that have been retracted across the COVID world, where, for example, it appears that in one case, the data was completely faked, which which wasn't the case here. This was more you know individual or a small amount of data errors built into a larger analysis. Remember, again, it's a big team. Mm -hmm. The paper has multiple authors on it from multiple different institutions. So again, I think a, a good example of, of, of crisis management insofar as the authors identified the problem or readers identified the problem, they owned up to it and uh, were able to get what I think is a successful conclusion out of it. And probably, you know, the reputations have probably been a little bit damaged, but, but not, not fatally, unlike some of the others. 
Yeah, and Mark, we're going to get into a couple. Well said, we've got a couple here where we've got that we'd like to talk about. So there's a, a Dieter Stapel, a Dutch social psychologist who perpetrated kind of a massive fraud about human nature papers. Uh, South Korean scientist did some was accused of fraud related to some stem cell research, Dr. Huang Wu Suk. And then a little closer to home, a behavioral ecologist who was working with spiders at McMaster falsified and fabricated data according to a, a probe. So I'm not sure which one you wanted to start on, Mark, but thank, we'll circulate all of these articles. They were It was actually, these three were fascinating reading to me. Each one of these is worthy of a podcast, frankly. And But anyway, I don't, I don't know how much justice we can do to each, but was there one that, one that you wanted to start with? Well, I'll just I'll, I'll say that the I'll run through the 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 psychologist and the stem cell researcher in a couple of sentences. These are people who had developed in their field international reputations, and it appears in retrospect that they actually made up the data completely. the The psychologist is a New York Times article from 2013, and if you want to actually read something very interesting, I would just recommend the listeners read that article. We'll have the link in the show notes. Basically, it sounds like he just made it up. In fact, he, there's a story there where he went to the train station where he thought he had done one of the experiments and he couldn't find where he had done it, which is, I think, the epiphanal moment when he realized that, in fact, he was lying not only to his readers and to the journal and to the world, but also to himself. It's actually quite an odd, odd article, but it does highlight the fact that this quest for fame and notoriety and perfection uh, framed in the context of a person who has academic credentials can result in major mayhem. I, I I got the impression from that New York Times article that basically almost everything that that person had composed in terms of the scientific literature was fake or largely fake. And, and unfortunately, it takes down a bunch of other people. Same with the stem cell researcher, exactly the same story, made up a lot of data, got an international reputation. It appears that very little or nothing of what was published was actually real. Lots and lots of examples of this. Yeah, th- this one with this guy has struck me. You and I like that. There's a there's a, a a note. It's not a fallacy, but Hanlon's razor, one of these kind of shortcuts, is it says that basically don't attribute to malice that which is explained by stupidity. And I'm not saying that this person was stupid, but there's something here about like, and, and then there's another one you and I like that's related called Gray's coral, corollary, which is a corollary to Hanlon's razor. And that one reads, any sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice. And I, I like that one is sort of like at a I like to say that when at a certain juncture, evil and stupid look the same. That's my that's my that's Brady's Brady and Mark's corollary. But in this one, it's like, you know, this guy was like almost like I don't know if you'd say he's high on his own supply. Like when you're reading this, it was like he had he had it. He was living, if this is accurate, in a cognitive distortion about the fraud he was committing. And I wonder if that's the same for a lot of folks like Bernie Madoff or others where it's like it's like inconceivable the level of 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 fraud but there's some pathology underneath that so i don't know what to do with folks like that but it strikes me this is one of those strange examples so not germane to our discussion of crisis communications best practices but just worth noting that's the that's the bizarre part of this story well it's actually uh, yeah i agree with that completely and actually the reason i brought this up in our discussions in prep for this episode was that it's exactly the same fundamental underpinning as nicola sturgeon like you're living in this cognitively distorted world. And you know, the most obvious example of a highly cognitively distorted world is the world privacy tour, right? It's it is a it is a world that 
only a tiny handful of people can possibly inhabit. And when you're in that world looking out, the world looks very different than it does for those of us looking in from the outside, I'm very sure. So yeah. basically, I think the same underlying issue, and that is that your your perceptions of reality are framed by the context within which you find yourself. Yes, and I guess we'll find we should put a note there. We don't know if Nicholas Sturgeon has actually committed any crimes, but but yes, for sure, it's, it seems like these people live in a it's almost like a mood or an atmosphere that the rest of us don't. And again, I, I don't think it takes away necessarily the they've committed the wrong act. I think we'd all agree on some level they've got the mens rea as well, the guilty mind. But there's some the cognitive distortion actually leaves me with a sense of empathy for these people in some ways. Yeah, I agree with you. The, we were, were running a bit long, but let me just give a quick summary on the spider guy. So Jonathan Pruitt was a researcher who was recruited to McMaster, which is where I work and where Brady has a part-time appointment, so conflict of interest disclosure, in a different faculty than we're in, in the Faculty of Science. He was extraordinarily well-known in his field, was recruited to an extraordinarily prestigious research position funded indirectly by the Government of Canada had a tremendous track record, all kinds of super interesting research. He, he he focused on essentially spider psychology, which is interesting. You know, the fact that he, that, you know, these creatures have an approach to life and that's how they survive for much longer than humans have survived and looking like they'll survive longer than humans are going to survive. So very, very prominent. And then what started to happen was there were accusations brought forward from multiple different sources about the reliability of the research that he published. And this has been kind of a sort of slowly evolving train wreck for a couple of years. He then withdrew from McMaster and then ultimately resigned relatively recently last year. And now I understand is working as a high school biology teacher in Florida somewhere. And and a major contributor to his falling from grace was the fact that co-authors on papers, who I mentioned at the start, are taking responsibility for the data, started to get concerned about the quality or reliability of some of the data, and then tried to get journals to retract some of the information. And then that led to an investigation of McMaster, which was finally leaked within the relatively recent past, and then now disclosed publicly by McMaster University. But again, the same interesting thing, we don't have any real vision into his psychology, because he's been really quiet about the whole thing, but certainly made, uh, in my world, national, international level headlines. And I think identifies exactly the same thing. You wonder why people would do this, particularly if they're sufficiently smart that they probably could actually generate the data and get the paper. Here's a, there's a, tw a tweet here from a researcher whose name is Kate Laskowski, who was one of the co-investigators who started to bring the problems to light. And she states in the Twitter feed, whoa, on a random Wednesday, three and a half years later, the craziest chapter of my career comes to a close. I hope McMaster releases summarized findings of their Pruitt data investigations. The committee found that Dr. Pruitt engaged in fabrication. And so just very interesting to me that this guy's career, he was on like the ballistic ascent phase of his career and he went down in flames exactly the same problem i think was too striving too interested in success probably made a little error a long time ago found that nobody identified it and corrected it started to gradually increment the size of those errors and ended up fabricating large amounts of data and then goes down in flames and and unlike the covid paper which we talked about at the start doesn't have a strategy to try to rectify it now it might be that the 
that the damage is just too great for them to be able to pull themselves out of the terminal dive that they're in. But super interesting area. Well, and I think, Mark, too, this, again, conflict of interest, we're obviously McMaster fans being both affiliated with the university. But from that institutional perspective, this one's a great case study because I think where the university comes out well, and I, I think I could say this quite objectively, is they release the results of the of the investigation. It's not it's unequivocal that the person had uh, committed some wrongdoing and and engaged in fabrication and falsification. And you kind of see that in this, you know, she's quoted in the article as well, this co-researcher of his, Kate Laskowski, who says, you know, she's she's kind of in the article, she says, I can't believe the university is actually publicly saying that. And, and the way I read the quote is that she's saying, like, good on them. And I didn't expect this. I thought this would be handled quietly. But I think when you look at it through, through that institutional lens, how does an institution like a world-class university handle this kind of fraud? I think this is the way to do it. You acknowledge that there's an investigation. You keep the press abreast of what's going on in the investigation. You publish the results and you make sure that you have extremely rigorous internal standards and, you know, serious, severe consequences for the for the person who would who would be involved in this. Because, again, the entire institutional reputation can be on the line. So some researchers carry the standing of an entire institution and probably all institutions have a couple of stars. So if one of the major publishers at McMaster and in, in any of the faculties had an accusation like this. That all, all the universities have to be extremely rigorous and quick to act in, in the correct way to not cover up and to, to preserve the reputation as opposed to protect a star, for example. I totally agree. And, and I think probably worth thinking further about how in institutions protect themselves from these kind of things because again, nobody in an institution can know what their researcher is doing. There's no way you can check the individual data. A, a great hashtag as part of this is calling it Spidergate, which I like. <laughs> uh, we should just wrap up, Brady. Just a note that these things have other consequences. So again, we'll link in the show notes a reference to the U.S. Department of Justice, which is probably not a place you want to be notarized. Duke University agrees to pay 112.5 million to salt, settle false claim false claims acts allegations related to scientific research and misconduct. So, you know, these things have enormous consequences. A hundred million US dollars is a lot of money, way more than is missing from the SNP coffers and is a consequence of essentially scientific misconduct by one or more people that was identified and brought to light and then prosecuted or at least notarized by the US Department of Justice. Not good. Not not a good place to be. Absolutely. Not so a good place to be. I do think in summary, I'm not sure how to wrap this up, but I think we're always looking at those dimensions that are going to enrich our understanding of crisis communication. I think the institutional angle on the fraud one is the right one. I would be curious if uh, of where researchers as well recoup their reputation. But the Lancet article was also a good example of that, actually, the way those folks navigated that with the journal to achieve a republication. You don't anticipate it'll damage their careers terribly. So we've got kind of two actually good good case studies in this realm of academic dishonesty or academic outcomes that are, you know, less than ideal. In the Lancet Journal, there didn't appear to be any intentional fraud or, you know, they weren't trying to do something wrong there. But I think both both stand up as really good, really good case studies in this in this field. And I would say the if we look at all the things we've talked about today, again, case studies on crisis management, we're not sure that the the, the the lawsuit did anything to help Harry and Megan's reputation. 
nor I think we both feel that the privacy tour is not doing a lot of good for them. The uh, other Arnold Schwarzenegger, interesting observation about the kind of US centric, one of the US centric ways of managing crisis communication that probably doesn't work in some other countries. Nicola Sturgeon, probably not the best job at crisis communication, either by her or to be completely honest, by the Scottish Nationalist Party. And then the researchers spanning the spectrum of institutional and personal taking responsibility, avoiding responsibility, ducking for cover, all illustrating that I think you can, if you have a well-articulated strategy to manage reputation, even through severe crises, in many circumstances, you can actually salvage something useful, unless there's frank criminality involved, in which case it becomes quite difficult. So that's kind of my wrap up of a highly disparate set of diff- of observations from today's podcast, but I think all pretty relevant. Absolutely. I'll, I'll end. There's a cool line I just remembered from the Arnold documentary, but I think he attributes it to Ted Turner from CNN. But he said the one of the the mottos he says is early to bed, early to rise, work real hard and advertise. So maybe for us, we probably need to start solitizing a little more externally about this podcast, but we thank everyone for listening. We're going to keep going and Mark, I'll see you in a week or two and we'll record our next episode. Thanks, Brady. Have a great rest of June and happy Father's Day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.